Hey there, this is Ray Dargam from STEP, and welcome to this episode of Meta Conversations, where I interview successful startup founders in or from emerging markets. If you enjoy listening and find it useful, you can follow the podcast on Spotify and Rami and Apple Podcasts, or watch the video version on stepplus.stepconference.com. I'm joined today by Ross Veach, who's the uh, co-founder and CEO of WeGo. Uh, Ross, thank you for joining us. Hey, Ray. Great to be with you. So there's a lot to talk about here today, and um, you've been through a quite tough last uh, year and a half since COVID started. Is for anyone who's in the travel business, uh, you've been hit uh, quite hard. Uh, so I'm really uh, wanting to hear about that, and I think there's a lot of learnings uh, over there. But first, uh, I'd love to hear more about your story, your background. You're probably probably break the record for uh, the longest serving entrepreneur in a single startup. You you started in 2005, so 16 years. Uh, tell us about that. Yeah, so we always joke, you know, we goes uh, our decade long overnight success story. You know, we, um, uh, yeah, so 2005, uh, we, uh, so Craig and I'm a co-founder, we, we started kicking around ideas for WeGo. You were inspired by some of the, um, early travel meta search players coming out of the US. Um, and you know, I had had a bit of exposure to travel. You know, I, I did a couple of years for tourism in Australia, you know, long, long time ago, um, sort of running strategic planning analysis. And then um, while I was at Yahoo building their products for um, for the Asia region, you know, we you know, travel was one of the verticals we you know, we built out, you know, it was something, you know, um, I took a, a liking to, I was doing a lot of traveling myself. There's all these low cost carriers coming to Asia. There's no way to shop them all. Yeah, there's no, nothing like Expedia for the region. I thought, um, yeah, travel meta that, you know, that, that's something I'd like to use. Seemed to be a pretty good business model, you know, better mousetrap. So I thought somebody should bring it to the rest of the world. Um, and so yeah, 2005, we kicked it off with the benefit of hindsight. You know, we're probably five, six years too early with the model for the region we we're initially tackling. Um, um, that's a small time Asia region you're referring to, yeah? Yeah, so I, I, I sort of come to Singapore to help set up Yahoo's operations in the region back during the first dot-com boom and sort of cut my teeth running uh, product engineering teams for them and sort of doing business development all across Southeast Asia. So that was kind of what I knew, like Southeast Asia, Hong Kong, India. Um, and you know, we originally thought you know, Southeast Asia was the the, the you know the the target market. Um, that took a lot longer than we originally thought it would. Um, and you know, rather than wait for the market to develop, yeah, you know, we went global. And yeah, you know, but part of the part of the um, you know, some of the markets that really took off were in the in the Middle East. So you know, we localized. Uh, and we did 60 countries, 20 plus languages, including Arabic. You know, we did the uh, the right to left. Um, just organically, it started growing. And then we started paying attention. We realized there's a big untapped um, market, primarily around the Gulf. So at the time, adoption looked a lot like emerging market levels, but the unit economics were really quite good. So people were you know, had relatively high incomes. They're traveling a lot, so high frequency. Um, basket sizes were quite high. Um, and you know, so we started, you know, started to focus, um, spend a lot of time in the region, meeting you know, new business partners, you know, meeting all the airlines, 
all the um, the online travel agencies, the hotel chains that we uh, you know, we help uh, help people shop. We um, yeah, we set up in the Dubai Internet City, got a you know, quite a big office there now, and effectively we're dual headquartered Dubai and Singapore. We run um, product and engineering, data science out of Singapore, and we run you know, the commercial marketing side of the business out of uh, out of Dubai. And That's when you started, what was a pre-mobile area? Like, how, how would you get started on a travel meta search uh, pre-mobile area uh, era? Uh, and how did you get win your your first like hundred customers? Yeah, so when we first kicked it off, it was all desktop web. Yeah, mobile web was barely a thing yet. Um, native apps had not yet launched. So I think the iPhone came out around that time and it was a, um, you know, it was all effectively web apps, you know, within the, you know, the, um, uh, the Apple, uh, Apple environment back then. Um, yeah, so desktop game and so, our, our business model, at least when we first started, was um, yeah, that of a yeah, travel meta search. It's a pure meta search business, which is you, know, you can think of it as a marketplace. So we got um, users on on one side looking to purchase travel products. On the other side, we've got um, our suppliers and online travel agencies, and yeah, we help help shop them all. And like any marketplace business, you've got a chicken and egg problem, right? So nobody wants to work with you on the supply side until you can bring the demand. And we kind of you know, got around this by um, white labeling our platform into all the big horizontal portals of the day. So yeah, we worked with um, we worked with Yahoo, we worked with uh, MSN, a uh, whole bunch of you know, local equivalents, tourism boards, you know, anybody who needed a, traf- a travel vertical. And that so that brought the demand. Um, and then, you know, once we had the demand, the supply was sort of fairly easy. And, you know, we got it up to a critical mass that way. That's interesting. Yeah, a lot of uh, startups have this problem initially when starting, like have the chicken and egg problem. So was it like a plugin that you would integrate as part of MSN or Yahoo at that time, which is, again, it's a pre-mobile kind of like uh, era? What was, it, was it that way you're doing? Yeah, well, so we, we had a few different flavors of integration, but you know, what typically worked would, you know, we'd set up a, you know, a subdomain, um, you know, travel at MSN or, uh, or .com, et cetera. You know, that would point at our servers. You know, we'd figure out how to make it look like their website, um, basically take care of it all for them. Yeah, we also have APIs available, but typically, um, you know, a lot of partners prefer to just take care of it. So it's sort of a bespoke white label. Um, but, so on a product level, like when 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 mobile uh, came into play, how did you? Uh, what was kind of your product vision? How did that evolve in terms of the product and your strategy? Uh, kind of like within the, the change that was taking place. Yeah. So we. Um, so it was pretty clear that native apps gave you a, a superior product experience from a. Um, you know, client perspective versus the web, at least in the early days. You know, I think it's a bit more of a you know, balance these days with progressive web app technology. You know, often it's hard to tell what you're actually, you know, what the underlying framework is or code base. But um, um, so we, we lent into mobile apps, you know, native apps quite early. Um, tried a few different approaches to development until we found a formula that worked. You know, we tried asking our web guys to, to learn it. You know, that wasn't ideal. We tried sort of a doing the designs internally, the back end stuff internally, and sort of outsourcing the front end work. 
you know, that, that didn't work great. And then eventually we, um, we hired a bunch of guys who'd spent years in the gaming industry. Um, and you know, we asked them to you know, have a crack at uh, e-commerce with us and that, that worked really well. So the gaming guys you know, pushed the platform, the hardware you know, to the edge. And so for them, um, e-commerce and what we wanted them to do was yeah, relatively easy. Uh, but yeah. what do you think was the gaming guys that figured it out? <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. I mean, so yeah, if you're if you're optimizing, um, yeah, if you're optimizing your, uh, if, you, if you're trying to build something real time, three D, you know, with a you know, somebody else's gaming engine, you know, it's a lot more complicated and a lot more um, nuanced than uh, you're trying to build e commerce flows. So. Um, anyway, that worked for us. Um, a lot of our mobile devs are actually um, um, from Pakistan, so they've sort of cycled through our team in Singapore. Um, a lot of them are actually have moved back to um, back to Pakistan, and you know, rather than have them leave the company, you know, they've set up our uh, our office over there now. So we just opened our R and D center in Lahore. Um, and if there's any awesome devs who happen to be sitting in Lahore looking for a new opportunity, yeah, hit me up. Yeah, yeah we're, we're hiring. And how do you go about like organizing your your on a product level your uh, tech team that's kind of decentralized? Like you said, you have different devs in different cities, uh, and compared to you know where where. Uh, where you came from originally back in, in you know, you're doing products at the Yahoo days back in 2005. So how, how does that compare today to how you manage your uh, sprints and you manage your, your product and, and, and get uh, and ship features to market? Yeah, so I was actually doing product management for Yahoo back in the 90s, right? So it's sort of, sort of dating me. But um, yeah, yeah, back in the day, yeah, we didn't have yeah, real-time video or we did, but it wasn't very good. So effectively, you know, remote teams weren't ideal. Um, so, you know, be using mailing lists and conference calls to manage teams. You know, so it's very different today. You know, today, Rigo, yeah, Wego runs on um, Slack. You know, we've got Zoom's proper Zoom room set up in all the offices. We've got, um, you know, using all the Atlassian suite, you know, to you know, fairly, uh, fairly deep. Um, and, you know, we've got developers but developers spread across Singapore, KL, um, Bangalore, Lahore, Jakarta, um, and you know it, it works quite well. You know we have um, uh, you know there's like stand-ups every day you know, you know, via Zoom. Um, it's a lot. It's a lot easier now than it was uh, a decade ago. Yeah, definitely. And and how do you go about like a lot of Founders struggle with with feature uh, setting priorities for when it comes to features and uh, what feature to ship first, and especially when, very similar to you, you're competing with a lot of big players who have bigger teams, a lot more uh, cash, uh, but you need, to, you need to keep uh, shipping. So, what's your methodology as a founder uh, for prioritization when it comes to features and? Uh, uh, what you should keep, what you should build, what you should kill. Uh, how do you go about that? Yeah, good question. So we're um, we're just a little under two hundred people worldwide, which is relatively small compared to some of the global giants in the online travel space. You have you know, 
five, 10,000 people. Um, so that forces us to be ruthless when it comes to prioritization and what we choose to do or you know, what we choose not to do. Um, the way our planning cycle works, you know, we've got a you know, sort of a you know, vision for what we're trying to build. You know, that, you know, every year we sort of, you know, there's a couple you know, key things we absolutely have to get done, sort of a strategic um, focus. And then sort of hanging out of that, we have quarterly um, you know, product plans. Um, typically around the middle of the, around the middle of the quarter, we'll be locking in what's gonna happen the following quarter. Um, so the, you know, our VP product has first crack at that with his, his uh, lieutenants. Um, and then the, you know, the senior leadership team uh, debates it, and there's uh, you know, a fair bit of horse trading that goes on. So we, you know, we try to be reasonably nimble, but um, we, um, you know, we have sort of we have resources fixed particular business units, and they tend to stay there you know, within the course of a year. Um, and then you know, as we're as we're doing our annual planning, that's typically when the resources get reallocated um, that said you know things yeah. like COVID happen you know just throws everything up in the air and um you know we'll get yeah. to that in, in a bit. Uh, and and uh, how do you kind of like when it comes to customers and features how do you uh, set up your feedback loop with customers to get feedback on what features? So before you get to that, you know, quarterly kind of planning or, or the vision that you have for each quarter, where do customers or what, what have you set up in place uh, before and now? Because obviously you've also evolved from being a smaller company to a much bigger company uh, in terms of listening to what customers want and understanding what customers want in terms of features. Yeah. Um so we've so for better or worse, our customers are really not shy about telling us um, you know, when they like or dislike something. Um, so we spend a lot of time, uh, a lot of time going through the the app store reviews, going through the social media channels. Um, we run a lot of uh, a lot of surveys, asking people um, for feedback. There's different hooks in the website and the app where we're prompting people for feedback. Um, that said, when it comes to sort of you know big picture product um, prioritization, I think often people don't know what they want until they see it. You know, it's hard to for you. So I, I, yeah, we're a little bit top down when it comes to the sort of big picture product strategy stuff. Um, one yeah. thing I'm trying to be a bit more ruthless about is you know, before we green light new products or new features or initiatives, like figuring out. You know, what's this, what, what are the you know, what are the, the metrics we're going to use, and how are we defining success or failure, and then making sure we sort of loop back on it. And, um, if you go back a few years, we had a bad habit of just like knocking stuff out, um, you know, making sure we got through the product plan, not necessarily going back and make sure it was a good use of resource and we achieved what we were supposed to, um, or sort That's of. That's very difficult to do. Do you have an example of the like how, how do you usually do do that in terms of because um, that's very difficult to do uh, for any company going back and having the right metrics and checking if you did the right thing or not? Yeah, so I think we're probably a bit more data obsessed than most most uh, online companies. So we built our own you know, in-house analytics system. Um, we spend a, a lot of time um, looking at 
you know, uh, different cohorts, you know, you know um, sort of behavior over time. Um, but the we, we sort of sort of institutionalizing those um, uh, retrospectives. So making sure anything that we spend a significant amount of resource on, you know, we, we take the time to go back um, and do a retrospective. And if need be to go back and have another crack at it. Um, and it doesn't really matter if we succeed or fail, but if we don't learn something from the exercise, yeah. you know, that's when I'm really pissed. So um, <laughs> ideally it works well. Um, yeah, it's a success, but at the very least we need to figure out why, why it didn't you know, go to plan. Yeah, what happened? You need to know what happened. Um, to drive a little bit on, on growth and marketing, so for at the beginning phase, you mentioned that, you know, kind of uh, one way for you to grow uh, and to figure out the chicken and egg problem when you first started was to utilize uh, platforms such as MSN and Yahoo and others and doing this white label. After a post-mobile kind of, uh, and let's say after 2010, um, when, you know, uh, SEO and SEM and, and App Store uh, rankings and all of these things came into play. How did your strategy shift there and what are some of the uh, growth uh, hacks or tactics that you did in order to, to get customers? Uh, and, and maybe like one or two things that you've done that really worked for you guys. Sure. So, yeah, we, we, we took our original, you know, partner model for the web and sort of found a way to migrate that to the mobile app game. Um, so got great partnerships with uh, Huawei and Samsung. You know, they, they both preload WeGo in a whole bunch of different countries. Um, got good relationships with Apple and Google uh, on, the, on the dev side. So we sort of found over the years, if you find out what's important to them and you know, look for the intersection between you know, what they're trying to promote and what we're trying to build, you know, if you can you know, get in there and build something early, you know, they're, they're delighted to go out and tell people about it, which is good for us, good for them. Um, we've, uh, I think somewhat unusually, we built a, you know, we, we have a data science team, but we also have a marketing technology team whose job it is to just make sure you know, we're at the, you know, the cutting edge of everything you can do with tech. So the intersection of um, you know, marketing and technology. And I, I think that that's uh, that's served us well. They spend a lot of time studying the the Chinese market. I think you know, for anything mobile, China's you know, always a, you know, a great reference. Um, so we you know, we do that on both the product and the marketing side. So that's that's worked well. Um, we've got a great partnership with the uh, the NBC Group. So we got to know them when we started spending time in the Gulf. Um, they're actually a um, shareholder of WeGo now, and you know, you know being quite instrumental in helping. You know, build the brand, tell the story, you know, reach a you know, broader group you know, right across their satellite footprint. Um, so, you know, happy to say, you know, today when we run our, our dipstick brand awareness surveys every quarter, you know, we're right up there with um, you know, our friends at Booking.com in terms of you know, brand awareness in the online travel space you know, all over the Middle East. Um, was, was that partnership before they became a shareholder or was it after? Uh, so we got to know them beforehand. Yeah, we'd run some TV with them. Um, yeah, we're experimenting. We're trying to run TV advertising on a performance basis. So yeah, trying to yeah, run spots, looking for the immediate impact you know, and optimizing the media schedule. 
Um, so we, we, we tinkered around with that, and then we just sort of like cut to the chase and you know, brought him in as a as a, as a shareholder. Um, but, you know, they've been, been great partners for us. Makes me think of a, of a question there. Uh, how how important or, or how much does TV still work uh, today in the Middle East or Southeast Asia for a BTC company like you guys? I think it depends on um, it depends on you know the audience you're trying to attract, you know, so the you know the product that you're trying to sell or, or promote, um, and then how you use it, right? So. Um, you know, different stages of development. You're trying to do different things with your marketing strategy, right? So if you if you you know if, if you're trying to um, you know, establish your brand and you know the people who consume your brand uh, target for your product are consuming TV, then it's a good fit. You know, as long as you do something smart with your media buy and your creative. Um, keep in mind, you know, NBC now there's a big digital part to the platform as well, right? So you know, it's, it's which I had in the other area. Yeah. Yeah, um, yeah. I, th I think TV is still very relevant. You know, um, I see all the big digital brands um, in most part of the world are you know, hammering away at TV. Um, yeah, and some, how, do you, some, how do you track conversion? How do you try? How do you go about tracking conversion when you run a TV campaign or an outdoor campaign? What's your? Uh, is it like with a promo code, or or uh, do you focus a lot on trying to figure out how much was your? cost of acquisition for, for, for a TV campaign or an outdoor campaign? Yeah, so it's a great question. Um, so we've tried a bunch of different strategies over the years. Um, there's actually a whole whole bunch of people who do nothing else but TV analytics for e-commerce companies now. Um, yeah. the, the general gist is to look for, to, to get your, to get your, um, get the data telling you, you know, which spot ran on which channel exactly which time, and then look for correlations in real-time um, activity on your site, so app downloads, you know, sessions. And then sort of you're working on the assumption that the short-term impacts from the direct response are proportional to the you know, longer-term you know, brand impacts, so the things are going to drive a lifetime value. And you, know, you can tease that out over time, but um, you then sort of optimize your media buy to drive that short-term response. That's the gist of it. And then you do yeah, multi-variable regression over a longer time to see um, you know, how you, what, what, what your TV drove versus your, you know, your SCM or your other activities. How long did it take you to, to figure out your metrics from your, your, your uh, lifetime value to your cost of acquisition and other things? Uh, I mean, probably it's a continuous process, but when, when sure. did you reach a stage where you felt that, you know, from day started that you felt that, you know, you have a good grasp on, on your, your customer metrics. Yeah. I mean, so in many ways, we're still figuring some of that stuff out. Um, there was a, there was a real, a real shift when we moved the focus from the web to the native apps, um, ability to track. So our, our platform, we've never forced people to register. So there's a, you know, you're relying on cookies and same browser in order to look at people longitudinally, and um, that that was tough on the web. Um, so we, we used to focus more on like you know, same session arbitrage. Moving to the native apps, you know, it was so much easier to look at you know, users over the full lifetime value. Um, 
and then to start doing you know, proper cohort analysis. Um, so yeah, it was really the, you know, the platform difference. Um, and then so what we what we do now, you know, we look at the different you know, different ways we're acquiring users, different channels, different campaigns, um, and then look look for short-term signals that are predictive of lifetime value. And then, yeah, when we see a, yeah, something that resonates, we go back and double down on that. Somebody's, um, if something's under, yeah, we cut it, find something else to do. So that's sort of the basis of our, uh, our uh, acquisition strategy now. I'd like to tell you about another podcast, Akbar Tech. Start your mornings with Akbar Tech for the latest news in the startup and tech space in the Middle East and North Africa. Keep up with everything from new investments, reports, and laws that should be on your radar, all while drinking your morning coffee or mate. Listen to Akbar Tech on your favorite podcast app every Sunday through Thursday. And when it comes to your expansion to other markets, I know you touched a little bit on uh, your expansion to the Middle East. Uh, how do you go about that? And what, what was your your kind of first touch point with the Middle East? And how did you decide to 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 to? Because you started in Southeast Asia, and um, yeah. you're now in 60 countries. So when you want to expand from one country to the other, and and coming into an establishing big base uh, uh, in the Middle East initially. Uh, how did that come about? What was your, your kind of uh, thinking and what drove you to focus on this market? So, Southeast Asia was taking too long. Um, so, we decided to go global. I basically got a list of you know, users who were on the internet at the time, users who are pro- pro- projected to be on the internet five years from now, by country, by language spoken. I think we drew a line under the 95th percentile and said, yeah, we'll support everything above that line. that was any, you know, any significant size. Um, and so, yeah, we localized for a um, bunch of countries in the, in the MENA region and we did, we did Arabic. It just started to take off organically. And then we um, yeah, started pouring fuel on the fire and localizing the product properly. Started spending a lot of time in um, Dubai and around the Gulf um, and then, you know, progressively we moved more and more functions into into our Dubai office, um, to the point, you know, we're now effectively co you know, dual headquartered. Um, the uh, the Arabian travel market was uh, you know, it's always been a great event for us. So we you know we turn up on that on mass. We see you know, hundreds of different partners you know, over the course of the week, you know, just like meetings, bang, 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 bang. So that's, that's a great event. Um, and yeah, so the, the Middle East now drives you know, more than half of our total business. You know, we also have you know, decent presence in uh, you know, India, Pakistan. Um, Turkey's a nice market for us, expanding down into Africa. Um, you know, Southeast Asia is still significant, um, but the Middle East is really, you know, the, the, the core of the business and where we spend the, you know, the, the focus from a sort of brand building point of view. That's the you know, part of the world we track the most closely. Well, what are the things that you look for? This is something that, especially in the in, in our part of the world, 
uh, most startups because of the way the geography is and it's not one big country like the US or other markets so from very early on most founders need to start thinking about expanding into new markets I need to go into Saudi even if I'm you know not just the Middle East it's not one market it's many different markets many different behaviors many different audiences uh, so if I'm in the UAE I very early on, I'm going to need to start thinking about expanding into Saudi, expanding into Egypt. And I've spoken with a lot of founders who each have different kind of ways they go about this. What are your, like, what do you look for when you want to go into a new country? Uh, if you want to go into Turkey or Pakistan or uh, KSA, what are the, uh, what is your checklist that you go through? Is it more um the gut feeling that you know you feel that you need to be in a certain market uh, or more of a data-driven kind of like checklist that you go through before you decide to deploy resources to go after a certain country yeah i mean so fortunately our business model is relatively relatively light so we can move in with only a limited amount of investment but what we're looking for is yeah, crit critical mass of people who are traveling and booking their travel online. Yeah, fairly simple. We, we also need um, we also need partners to sign up and to participate in the marketplace. So, um, you know, airlines and hotel chains who've got their e-commerce game together, and then we need um, online travel agencies who are interested in those markets. So either you know global or regional guys or local guys. And you know, fortunately for the Middle East, we've got a great mixture of both. Um, so, you know, looking for partners, we need to sign them up, integrate them, we need to make sure the product's properly localized for each country. And actually, we, we sort of take it, you know, down to each city. So if you're sitting in, you know, Riyadh, you're getting a different we, we go experience than if you're sitting in Jeddah. So we look at the, you know, data mine, you know, the, you know, the travel preferences and behaviors you know, for every key metro. Um, and then, you know, the next step is actually to, you know, personalize it. So, you know, you will have a different experience on Wego than the, you know, the person, you know, living in the apartment next door, you know, once we get to, to know you and sort of profile you a little bit. So that's something we're working on at the moment. So a bit of a holy grail for travel. Everybody, you go along to a travel conference, everybody talks about product personalization. Yeah. Play with the apps and it's like, <laughs> they're all pretty much identical experience. So we're actually trying to do something about it at the moment. Well, what kind of tech have you uh, built in place to, to kind of automate or, or uh, create more personalization within your product? So it's sort of one of the projects that we, uh, you know, we've invested in you know, during some of the, the, the quieter months because of COVID. So we um, have been boiling down a lot of the data we've collected from all our users over the years and yeah, building you know, individual you know, personas, profiles that we can then use to personalize the experience. So. Yeah, every time you're using WeGo, you've got a preference for um, you know, Jumeirah hotels. We'll make sure that you know Jumeirah's you know, top of your, you know, we're, we're merchandising them to you when you're searching for a new destination. You know, if you go to London, there's a Jumeirah hotel, it'll be top of the results. Um, you know, if you always book uh, low cost, you know, we'll start preferencing that for you. Um, if it's a hotel you've stayed in before, you know, we'll make sure you see that one. Um, if you're typically traveling for business, you know, if we see you, you know, on the plane to uh, to Riyadh every Sunday morning, coming back every Thursday, yeah, we'll make it you're easy. Going to help them. <laughs> 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 special. Yeah, we're doing smart things like that, and I think um, you know the guys, uh, you know, Kareem, you know, do a great job of this. So, you know, taking a few tricks out of their bag, 
um, their book. So you know, a couple of clicks to get you know, re repetitive um, um, repeat bookings done. Uh, you know, if every time you, you you run a set of flight searches, you know, you choose the same filters, you shouldn't have to do it. You know, every time, right? We should just do it for you automatically. Stuff like that. Uh, in in um, around March 2020, when when what was the day that you first realized that you know, like we're in trouble? Uh, there is there is the next phase is going to be different than the previous stage. Yeah, so I, I've been tracking COVID all the way actually pretty early. I was sort of watching what was going on in China in January. Um, I thought we might have dodged the bullet until you know it really started hitting Iran. As soon as Iran got hit, I kind of knew the rest of the Middle East was, you know, going to have a problem as well. Um, so, yeah, in March, you know, we went from, you know, we went from sort of like making uh, about, you know, $3 million a month over the course of, you know, I think two weeks. It was down to almost nothing. You know, we, we did about you know, $50,000 in our worst month. And that was when... You know, all the all the planes got parked in the desert. The airports got padlocked, and you know, everybody was uh, was lo was locked down. So that was a that was pretty ex a pretty extreme uh, halt to, to business. Um, yeah, and we uh, yeah we sort of had to make a decision. So travel companies you know tackled this in two ways. So some of them you know sacked three quarters of the team and hibernated. Um, we we took a somewhat different approach. We um, we you know, cut all the marketing immediately. Um, we asked all the staff to you know, take some pay cuts. Um, we we'll cut cut the you know, cash component. We made up for it in stocks. Every everybody who works at Wego is now a shareholder of Wego. Um, and we yeah, we sort of we doubled down and sort of invested in product development. So we thought you know, we want to. You know, keep the team together um, and do everything we can so that you know, when people start traveling again, we come out the other side you know, stronger than when we went into it so we can take share. We also kept the, um, we kind of swip, uh, switched the content marketing strategy. So pre-COVID, it was very inspirational, you know, very Instagram friendly stuff. During COVID, people's main, you know, um, so we switched over to sort of an information Need strategies so helping people people figure out where they can go, you know, the logistics, tests involved. Is it open? Is it closed? Who's it open to? You know, how long's the quarantine? Um, so a lot of that. So did a lot of social media, kept that going flat out all through COVID, um, just trying to keep people engaged, and it seems to be working. So now, you know, mid, our Middle East business is back to about 35, 40 percent of what it was pre-COVID. Um, but interestingly, it's all coming back organically, and we still haven't really cranked up the, the marketing machine. Um, and when we, you know, we've still been running the brand dipstick tracking all the way through, um, and you know, the brand's as strong as it was going into it. So, um, the, I, 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 yeah, it's been a been a rough year and a half. I won't I won't lie to you, um, but you know, we can see the light at the end of the tunnel now. I, I think the, the approach we've taken will bear. It's going to pay off. Like the the business coming out of COVID is going to be a lot more profitable than it was going into it, just because of all the changes we've been forced to make. That you made. 
uh, and how, how do you I know it's very difficult to kind of go through like in terms of like predicting things that are out of your control uh, how did you see going through it like month by month how did, did you just waiting for kind of travel to come back and people to book or were you going after certain uh, markets as they open or certain segments as they open uh, how would you navigate that between so we spoke about kind of like more the cost part but on the revenue part as you're trying to drive your revenue back up again and, and still probably you know uh, same thing as today as you're still around kind of like 30% 40% in certain markets um, what has been your approach uh, within that or certain things that you've seen in the travel market that are uh, coming before other yeah so look um, we've spent a lot of time just trying to figure out what on earth is going on with uh, regulations you know what what's happening with government policy we've got models to predict you know what we think will happen with government policy um, and we've got all the all the case data the you know the infection rates um, so we've got our own models sort of showing what's happening around the world. We've, you know, we've got a pretty good handle on what we think is going to happen in each country. So we've been able to forecast it reasonably well. Um, but I've got to tell you, I'm sick of uh, just sick of uh, having to monitor and track uh, COVID stats. It's like uh, it's really not what I signed up for when we, uh, we started this business. Um, but, uh, but, you know, what we've seen is every time a... Um, Every time an international route opens up, there's an immediate, you know, step change. You know, uh, response is so much pent up demand for travel for all sorts of purposes. Like a lot of people haven't seen their family for 18 months. So as soon as that becomes possible, we see a lot of people taking advantage of that. We've seen a lot of business travel coming back, which is sort of goes against what I keep reading coming out of the U.S. That you know nobody's ever going to step foot on a plane again for you know business purposes, but. Um, we're seeing a lot of people going to see clients and partners that they haven't seen for a long time. Um, my personal thesis on that is in the you know, Middle East and you know, Asia, you know, a lot of business is done face-to-face and I think it will continue to be, you know, we'll augment it with video conferencing, but I think that's coming back most of it. Um, and then leisure, I mean, a lot of people have had a really rough year, you know, so um, like at, at the moment, you know, you're in Dubai, but it's uh, it's it's practically empty. Like our our offices, like everybody's gone. You know, everybody wants to go on a vacation. Yeah, everybody's on vacation. Like um, we we had our leadership uh, meeting on uh, on Monday, and it's like there's like uh, two people in the Dubai office on the call. So um, uh, yeah, so everybody's traveling as soon as they get the chance, and our, our surveys tell us um, we're in for something of a boom as soon as it's physically possible and the quarantines go away. Like nobody's gonna travel with quarantines. Like you only travel if you really have to under those circumstances. But as soon as people- Do you think there's gonna be a uh, supply problem with uh, in, the, in, the, in the short term, like it's happening now with the automotive industry or some industry, like as things start to, you're saying like a spike, uh, do you see a supply problem that's gonna take place? So I, I think it's important for governments who are setting the policies to give the travel industry, you know, a couple of months heads up, you know, or at least to you know, telegraph the framework around which the decisions are going to be made so that we can anticipate it. Because if, 
if you've got a fleet of airlines and they've been parked in the desert for six months, it takes some time to you know, get them reconditioned and to get your pilots back into the simulator to make sure they're you know, ready to fly again. And there's a lot of other stuff that has to happen. So possibly, possibly. But Staffing as well, right? So it brings staff back. Correct. I mean, there's a lot of... Um, a lot of hotels around the world really struggling to properly staff their uh, their operations at the moment just because they rely on foreign labor. Or in some of the Western markets, the wage subsidies are at the point where it doesn't make sense to actually you know, go and go and work. Um, so that, that that'll 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 go away soon enough, I think. But um, I look the, the if there are supply issues, they'll be short term. You know. Um, most important thing is the demand is there. Like it's really, really clear. Um, yeah. You know, to take, take Saudi. So Saudi's our biggest market. So we spend a lot of time studying it. So I had, you know, the policy as of this week is you're not allowed to travel unless you're double vaccinated. Um, so I think at the moment. Double vaccinated. What does that mean? Is that like uh, two shots? Oh, the two so, shots. Okay. Previously, one was enough. I think with Delta, mm. you know, they're erring on the side of caution, so they're making sure you get your second shot. It's got to be, you know, two weeks to make sure it's taken effect. Um, so I, I think they're still under fifty percent. Um, but anyway, as as the rest of the population gets vaccinated, you know, they're suddenly going into the uh, you know the market that can actually travel again. Um, and you know, for the UAE, right, as soon as um, rest of Europe figures out how to rec recognize, you know, Sinopharm, um, you know, it's going to open up the, the range of destinations. Um, anyway, so th there's a lot of friction that needs to still be removed from the process. But generally, you're, you're optimistic about the, the whole space, the travel space. Yeah, so we, we've been doing scenario planning all through this. So rather than sort of trying to pick a number and manage to that, we sort of pick a range of scenarios and sort of make sure we're going to be fine within any of them, try and figure out leading indicators for where we're at. But our, our baseline is that by the end of this year, yeah, we'll be back to 2019 levels. Um, end of this year. End of this year. Maybe a little below. Um, we'll see. Yeah, ask me back in, uh, in January. Do you have any exciting plans for the, there's both the Expo uh, later this year and then uh, the World Cup as well in Qatar uh, after that. Uh, do you guys have any special things, plans that you have uh, for what's coming next? Yeah, so we've, uh, yeah, we've, um, I don't think we've announced this yet. Yeah, hey, so yeah, we've got a deal in place with uh, you know, Dubai Expo uh, 2020. Um, so we'll be, you know, selling tickets for them, making sure everybody who uses WeGo around the world knows that you know Expo is happening and um, how to get there, where to stay, what to see. Um, I think the season passes are going to be pretty compelling if you live in the in the UAE. Um, they're expecting uh, expecting everybody to go you know, multiple times. Um, so yeah, we'll, we'll be selling those in the UAE. Um, I. Looking forward to getting there myself. Uh, it's been many years since I went to a, an expo. The World Cup. Um, I don't think we've got a deal in place yet, but you know, if there's one to be had, we'll definitely be uh, in, in, in line for it. Yeah, selling a lot of people are going. 
are going to fly around the Gulf for the World Cup, like spend the night in Dubai and then go watch a game in, in, in Qatar and come back? I wouldn't be surprised. Um, got to make, yeah, we, we need all of the, uh, you know, some of the friction we've added from the you know, COVID health requirements to go away to make that sort of thing a bit more practical. Easier. But, you know, if you think back to, back a few years, there was a, there was a shuttle flight, you know, Dubai, Doha, every like 30, 45 minutes, right? Um, so that would make sense. And it'd be good, you know, spread, spread the benefit of the World Cup around the Gulf. I think it'd be good for the, um, the GCC. Yeah, because generally the World Cup happens in a, historically usually happens in a much bigger kind of geographic area where you actually have people flying from one city to other to watch to watch uh, the games. It's the first time it all happens in a very small geographic area, uh, but it might not be enough to host everyone sleeping sleeping there. So they're going to have to go sleep somewhere else. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that'll be interesting. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I guess we've got time, but, you know, um, it, would, it would be kind of cool if it was shared around between the, the GCC countries and those, those matches played across the region. Yeah. Um, it's like, you know, when Japan and Korea hosted it jointly a while ago. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, I want to talk a, bit, a little bit about fundraising. Uh, what was your journey? God, how, much, how much time have you spent on fundraising versus running the business uh, since we started? You, you've raised about $65 million, uh, to date, so that's, that's uh, uh, you know, a lot of fundraising to do. I think you're in, like, your Series A, so you've raised a lot of rounds. Uh, so you're a veteran kind of, like, uh, fundraiser. What, what are some of the things you went through, uh, tips you'd give to other founders uh, when it comes to that? Uh, yes, I mean, we, we bootstrapped for the first two years. Uh, so the first $2 million came out of our own pockets. Um, so it's becoming a very expensive hobby before we brought in external capital. It's a lot, it's definitely a very expensive hobby. Yeah. Um, I mean, what, what, one piece of advice I give to first-time founders is like think hard about the capital requirements for your first startup. You know, unless you're born, you know, born into a wealthy family, or you've for some reason had a windfall, um, try and pick something which is not too capital intensive first time out, so that you don't have to spend all your your first couple of years, you know, trying to raise money. You know, so you can focus on you know, the product, customers. Um, you know, ideally, you want to bootstrap. You know, um, you know, not every business model lends itself to that, but you know, it's worth just. You know, uh, making sure you know what you're getting yourself in for. Um, I think the days when you can, like I, I, I do a lot of uh, angel investing and um, the days when you know, people are prepared to fund a business plan without a, a product, I think are kind of over. <laughs> you know, like you, there's really no excuse for not building your, you know, your version one, your MVP before you go out and fundraise these days. Um, I think um, get, get organized. So if you're out there fundraising, um, you're going to meet a lot of people. You're probably going to do it again in a few years. And you'll do it again a few years later. So keep track of all the conversations you've had. I mean, simple stuff, but you know, you get 
um, you get into a process, you start doing a lot of meetings, meeting a lot of people. It's hard, It's very easy to lose track of. So get organized, track every every interaction, um, and follow people, right? Because you know people move around between funds. Um, there's some some good tools around for um, helping to automate that process. Um, what are some of the tools? Yeah, you can ask that. Um, yeah, I can't remember the name of it. Um, I haven't done it for a while. But you know, I've got a lot of lot of our, uh, you know, it's a bit like CRM for fundraising, for, you know, built for, yeah. for funders. So you um, organize and then by tracking, you mean, you know, between round and the other, you, you you know, have meetings, uh, catch-ups. What? What do you? How do you keep in touch with? Uh, like, what was your your approach other than you know staying organized? Yeah, so keep keep track of you know who you talk to, when you talk to them. You know, what was the outcome from the you know, the interaction? Um, you know, I yeah, but ideally anybody you've had any meaningful reaction with, you know, try and keep them keep in touch. You know, find a reason to. Um, and keep them updated on the business. Um, yeah, so if you yeah, build, build, build some sort of you know, CRM for yourself, it doesn't have to be complicated, but you know, keep, keep track of it. Because um, you, you, you will spend a lot of time on it. Uh, you know, it's, it's a huge waste if you, if you don't, because you're just not going to remember, particularly if it's over multiple years. Yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of amazing simple like Notion or Airtable. I think are great for kind of keeping things organized and being able to track things. Uh, they have they have good trials. Uh, what was your hardest round from from all different rounds you've done? What was the toughest one? Uh, so we had to do a yeah we, we had to raise some we had to do some convertible debt. A um, couple months into COVID, like we had a bit of a rainy day fund, but you know it wasn't really optimized for a complete full stop of the business. So, um, trying to raise money for a travel business in the first few months of a global pandemic, you know, high degree of difficulty. So, um, you know, we, we got it done, but it wasn't easy. Yeah, uh, fortunately, so imagine smart people looking through COVID. Um, you know, realizing there's you know, there's an opportunity. So if you have COVID doesn't knock a company over, it's going to make them stronger. You know, in the in the travel space. And if you if you look at all the um, publicly traded online travel companies, you know, interestingly, they're all trading above where they were you know, pre-COVID. It's basically uh, they've all been forced to do stuff they probably should have done anyway. They found all sorts of efficiencies in their business, so they're going to be you know, significantly more profitable coming out of it. Uh, yeah, that's for us too. There's no doubt that ever, everyone wants to travel, so uh, I, I think that will will come back uh, very quickly when when everyone can do that again. Uh, what is what is next for for WeGo? So, so what one of the things we did when um, when everybody's could you know was locked at you know in their home city and couldn't travel, you know, we had a look around and thought. You know, what else could we build that sort of leverages the you know, the user base, the app install base we already had? And we um, we created a new product called Shop Cash. So it's a um, 
It's a cashback shopping service. It's, it exists as a standalone brand and app to WeGo, but you know it's also in the process of being integrated into WeGo. So it'll be the it'll be a loyalty program if you're a, a WeGo user. So you can earn and burn um, on travel, but you can also earn cashback. You know, shopping at Amazon or at Noon or um, any one of hundreds of other merchants on the platform. Um, so that's actually taken off quite nicely. Um, so we think, you know, that's that's got huge. You know, there's there's companies running the same model in US, Europe, Russia, Latam, Asia, um, a billion plus you know, valuation. So we we think there's a lot of potential for that in the Gulf. Uh, is it integrated as as part of WeGo, or is that a standalone uh, product? Today it's standalone, but it's uh, yeah, very shortly it'll be properly integrated. Um, so it's in the app store today, Shopcash. If you if you, if you live uh, if you if you have a, uh, a GCC uh, account, um, the other thing we've been doing through um, COVID is making our transaction, uh, making our platform more transactional. So a lot of people have, I mean, in the past, you'd come to WeGo, shop the market, we'd send you somewhere else to book, and we were weren't really in control of the experience. We sent you off to somebody else's booking platform. Um, so now we've built a lot more transactional capabilities you know, into WeGo itself so that we have end-to-end control over the experience. Um, so as part of that, we've had to you know, integrate a whole bunch of payment gateways, fraud protection services, um, a whole bunch of B2B supplier partners, um, and to you know, spend a lot of time sort of tinkering with the, you know, the checkout path, a lot of A-B tests. Um, so yeah, we've been quite busy during COVID, I think it's fair to say. Yeah. Um, Have you integrated a, a buy now, pay later that's, that's been growing a lot in the region for the past few months? Yeah, watch, watch this space, coming soon. But yeah, I mean, we've seen it. It's a, it's a no-brainer for travel. We see it working really well in other parts of the world. Actually, the um, Brazil really pioneered this with travel to the point where Travel products, you know, if you're looking for a flight, it's not quoted in terms of the total flight price. It's quoted in terms of the, you know, the 12 monthly installments. Interesting. That's what everybody does, yeah. So that's how they all book. Yeah. <laughs> amazing. Uh, Ross, we've reached the, the end of the, the conversation. This, this is amazing. Uh, if people want to find uh, more about you or, or follow you and we go, uh, where, where are you most active? Where should they follow you on? So you can hit me up on LinkedIn. Uh, you can email me at Ross at WeGo. I'm not very active on Twitter. I sort of consume it more than I contribute to it. But um, yeah, it, uh, e- email is probably the best place. Or get somebody to introduce you. Amazing. Thank you very much for, for joining us. This, this has been great. Thanks, Ray. Appreciate it. Thank you for listening to this episode. If you like this podcast and want to listen to more episodes, Subscribe to the Meta Conversations podcast on one of your favorite podcast channels. 